0: Sumter It's a pretty famous name in the South Whether it's for Thomas Sumter Hero of the American Revolution And the original fighting Gamecock That gave us the name of a certain university's mascot Or it's for Fort Sumter However, the town of Sumter itself located southeast of columbia has become a hub for all sorts of activities whether you're looking for arts entertainment education sports or horticulture things may move at a slower pace here but there's quite a bit to be sampled in sumter and a whole lot of unique traditions to experience Discover South Carolina presents The Palmetto Porch, a podcast featuring some of South Carolina's most charming towns and highlighting what makes them so special. I'm Devin Whitmire. All season long, I'll be traveling through the Palmetto State, interviewing locals who will share their own unique perspective on places to visit, foods to try, and insider travel tips. These towns may be small, but they are big on fun, food, and Southern hospitality. Our first foray into Sumter involves a town staple, the Bradford watermelon. Never heard of it? Understandable, since it vanished for quite some time. Nat Bradford is the great, great, great grandson of Nathaniel Bradford, who first farmed the heirloom watermelon. And it was Nat who brought the fruit back from obscurity. We spoke about Sumter's growth as well as his work in bringing old farming traditions back to life. Nat, welcome to the Palmetto Porch. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Devin. Appreciate you having me.
0: For our listeners, what is the Bradford watermelon? What makes it special?
1: To me, the Bradford watermelon—it's not like a commercial melon. Commercial melons these days are bred for shipping, primarily. Flavors—one of the least, I guess traits that's selected for. Mostly it's disease resistance and shippability. And so the rinds are really thin, but the skin is really hard. They don't break very easily. The older melons, the ones that predate 1900, really were bred for flavor, for qualities that for the consumer to enjoy. So we have a really thick, tender rind, which is great for pickling or preserves, which is another old process of using the entire watermelon and then the flesh is just super tender as soon as you cook it or cut as soon as you cut it it weeps water the juice comes out the aroma fills the room and the texture of the watermelon i would say it's like the cotton candy of the watermelon world really
0: cotton candy so like it just kind of melts in your mouth
1: it's so succulent it just melts it does
0: Sounds delicious. And they look stunning too, long with an almost emerald green skin. But I was intrigued. Why did it fall out of popularity? As it turns out, Bradford watermelons are a little fragile. They can be ruined by a lot of movement.
1: They don't ship well as far as stacking them and shipping them on a in a boxcar or something like that. But you know, if you go back to the 1800s when watermelons um, were being shipped on rail car, the roads, the, the railroads and everything, they were so bumpy. They're not like the modern paved asphalt roads or the modern suspension system. So I have learned that we can stack them in the bed of our truck and the, the modern suspension system and smooth roads allow us to move them from city to city, but for long distance shipping Or freight, they don't ship. You can't box them up and ship them uh, UPS or something. We've tried that. It doesn't work out well.
0: They have to come here to get that flavor.
1: That's right. Or grow them yourself.
0: Very cool. Is farming always been in your background? Have you always wanted to be a farmer?
1: I have. Ever since I was a little kid, my first watermelon crop was when I was five. My granddad spent a lot of time with me in the field, teaching me how to grow or just working alongside him. And that was great for garden scale, but it it didn't really translate to modern agriculture. So fifteen years or so of landscape architecture, then I switched to farming. Farming has really leaped a great distance from when he was farming back in the fifties and sixties. so it's been a it's a good bit of catch up, but we're trying to preserve the end result, the quality, the flavor, the texture of the crops that we grow. But we're trying to bring some modernization to the process.
0: I wanted to know more about modern farming in detail and how it played a role in the reemergence of this fine fruit. Can you walk us through the research that you did to rediscover the Bradford watermelon?
1: Yes. The first real clue that I had beyond what was preserved and passed down through the family was when I was a Clemson student right out of college. I was doing an internship. My wife and I, was our first year of marriage up in Pennsylvania. In this horticulture library, I came across this book called Fruits and Vegetables of America by an author from about 1865, I think. And he was sort of a food critic of that day, and he listed his top fruits and vegetables and, and nut trees and things that every American garden needed to have. And so I was curious, what's what's the watermelon variety of that era that he would recommend? So I flipped over to his watermelon section, and he had a number of South Carolina varieties, and one of them was Bradford, and under it said, Bradford is the best. So, you know, this is 1865, and I'm thinking, gosh, we were only told that it went back to maybe late 1800s, early 1900s with my great granddad. And so the question came is, you know, is that the same Bradford Watermelon? It fit the description. It fit the location, the central part of South Carolina. We were the only Bradfords that would have been in that area in that time. So in my heart of hearts, I knew it was. I just didn't have a good way to verify it. But it sent me on that quest. That was 19... 98, I guess it was. And by 2012 is when I linked up with a food historian out of USC in Columbia who commented from the same book. He referenced that same book. It's this guy's got to know something. So I reached out to him and it changed everything, changed our whole trajectory.
0: That's fascinating. And you just happened upon it in a book and found your name. How did that feel?
1: Some people say you happened to pun it, but I think I was guided to it.
0: Fair, fair. How did that feel to see your name in a book that old?
1: Chills. I still get chills every time I talk about it. Chills go up and down my back and down my arms. It's a fascinating thing, especially to be so into plants and horticulture and then have that. It was a real gift to have that in our family. We're making a living out of it. So it was a huge change for us. Yeah,
0: How big of an undertaking was it to grow the watermelon for the first time after so many years? Describe the size and scale of that operation.
1: The first crop wasn't a really large crop, but we lived three hours away. We lived in the upstate of South Carolina. So it was coming home on the weekends, getting the field started, bringing the kids with me and getting them into it as well. I think it was about a third of an acre, which isn't huge. You know, I was still full-time landscape design build and just trying to figure out what we were going to do with all these watermelons. It was just, I think, the challenge of the distance and not knowing exactly where it's going, why am I doing this, other than there was a lot of pressure from the food scene to bring this crop back into existence.
0: How do you think traditions like the Bradford watermelon get lost to time?
1: There's a lot of reasons. Our watermelons, because it didn't keep up genetically with commercial agriculture as things transitioned from the late 1800s into, into the 1900s through shipping and things like that, they fall out of favor. The commercial varieties take over and like our watermelon, it sort of receded into just the backyard landscape and it wasn't picked up by seed companies after, I think, 1920 or something like that. So access to it became less and less, which happens to a lot of other crops. Butter beans is another example. Some of the best old varieties are pole beans, the ones that run. You have to trellis them. So the commercial butter beans are bush types, where the combines can go through the field and harvest them. So labor-intensive to hand-pick butter beans But they're in such great demand that those old varieties, if you want them, you have to grow them and trellis them and spend the time with them. They just.
0: Good things take time.
1: I I call them a handicap. It's a handicap that what we're trying to do on our farm, working with old varieties, is to identify what that handicap was that caused them to disappear. And are there creative ways that we can overcome it and bring them back into the agricultural landscape?
0: Do you think it's important to preserve agricultural traditions from the past?
1: Absolutely. If we hadn't preserved these seeds, and if there aren't folks doing the same thing, passing down the, the food history that goes along with saving the seeds each year, we wouldn't have this watermelon.
0: But there are always pitfalls when it comes to farming. In 2022, the family lost their entire crop. People looking forward to the cotton candy flavor of the Bradford watermelon were disappointed. But Nat says that's just part of the experience.
1: Every time you plant a crop, you know the risk is there. There's things that you can't control. A hailstorm could wipe out any of your crops at a specific time. We've had floods with our collards. This is the first watermelon crop that we've just outright lost due to just being out of sync with the pollination cycle. And we had two weeks of rainy, wet weather. The bees didn't come out and pollinate during the bad weather. And that was when they were blooming. The saving grace is they weren't marketable melons, but we were able to go in and save seeds. So we'll still get a seed crop.
0: Yeah, how do you feel looking forward to the next year and the next crop?
1: I've never looked at the next year from a total loss. So I guess next year I'm a little more apprehensive. I'll have this winter to think about it if I want to plant as much as I did last year or if I scale back a little bit. I don't know, but you know, I might try planting them a little bit earlier to see if they can get a, an earlier start before the thunderstorm season and stuff starts to come in. But you're just, there's so many things you think about and so little that you can do to, you can't outguess or outthink nature. It's gonna do what it's gonna do. So my granddad had a couple of veiled watermelon crops in his life. So maybe this is uh, one of my two.
0: Nat says farming ties together food tradition and community and all of those things are really important to preserve.
1: The best way to support farmers especially if if you want to do local farming is to get out go out in the countryside. There's signs that are all, all over the place fresh eggs, fresh produce. Stop in, you know, you're going to meet a lot of friendly people that are growing great crops with great stories and great history. And there might be another great old crop that hasn't been rediscovered out there in that process. That's how I meet a lot of folks and get a lot of their seeds that we grow is just through that contact, sharing seeds, sharing stories, and finding other great, cool old things that have been passed down through other families that they're really fragile. They could be lost in, in one season. I've heard stories many times where this was the last crop and it was, it was almost lost or someone else was saving the seeds that they had shared them with and got the seeds back through that. So it's, you know, if you want to support agriculture locally, get out and, or check with South Carolina department of agriculture, they can give you a list of, local farms that are selling produce in your areas. There's also great guides to local farmers markets that you can connect with local farms as well, but that's going to keep them invigorated and and moving forward with their crops and involved in their community.
0: I asked Nat about a place in Sumter he thinks everyone should see, and he told me about White's Mill a natural area you cross when heading into town with tall cypress trees growing right out of the water.
1: I guess I'm sort of stuck between the old preserving traditions and things, which I think that's what White's Mill is. It's this place stuck in time, the cypress trees. I asked my granddad, we were driving across it when I was a kid, how big the cypress trees were when he was little. And he said they haven't changed. They're the same size. So I think about that every time I cross over, how in the midst of all of the developing changes around the area, Sumter and people coming and going, some things don't change. And I think that's something that's special about certain things with Sumter, preserving our seeds, white's mill, and... You can still preserve the traditions of the past and flavors and things like that, but you can still be integrated into an ever-evolving society.
0: History can be fertile ground for new things to grow. Before we parted ways, Nat described an average day on his farm with Sumter as the stunning backdrop to his work.
1: So every morning... Wake up and see the beautiful fields out there, whatever crop we have growing, and then we start our harvest process, whether this time of year it's harvesting collards, packing them and getting them to the restaurants in the summertime. It's boxing up sweet corn and things like that. But it's integrated into our existence here on the farm and and we never get away from it. At the end of the day, I'll walk around the fields and just enjoy the sunset and just the beauty of the crops.
0: Has that sunset changed from your childhood of growing up in Sumter to what it is today?
1: It comes up in the same spot. Yep. <laughs> hasn't changed much, and I still love it. I appreciate it more as I get older.
0: Knowing where your food comes from is powerful. But having such a rich history and one's family connected to food? I left Nat having learned a lot about farming and appreciating how complex and meaningful it can truly be. I wanted to hear from another local about what else can grow in Sumter. And that led me to Jeffrey Lampkin. He's a name that many people from Sumter can recognize.
2: So there are several places that your listeners, they can know me from. American Idol is probably the number one. Several of them would also know me from after American Idol. I had the privilege and the opportunity of serving Fox News in Columbia, Watch Fox News. And during that time, I was an entertainment correspondent and worked my way up to entertainment reporter.
0: Moving from farming to the stage. A bit jarring, I know. But I wanted to see the town through Jeffrey's eyes he talked about his childhood in the nearby town of Manning and how he spent quality time with his family in Sumter.
2: Scenes of nature that I've ever experienced in my life is found in Sumter, South Carolina. I remember as a child, my mom, would take my sister and I, and she would take us to Swan Lake. We would go by the store beforehand and we would buy a loaf of bread. And I'm sorry, Ooh, God, I love my mom. Let's just start there. So she would buy a loaf of bread and we would go out to Swan Lake and we would see the swans. And it was the most amazing thing
0: Did your time in Sumter have an influence on your pursuits in entertainment and
2: media? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because now during that time, so when I was growing up in Sumter, what's ironic was it's so crazy because now I'm on The Big DM. The Big DM is the largest radio station in South Carolina, and it covers 80% of the state.
0: 101 FM, The Big DM, was founded in Sumter. It must have been unbelievable for Jeffrey to start appearing on the very station he listened to growing up. I wondered if Jeffrey always knew he wanted to sing. He told me a story of when the reigning Miss America came to his middle school in Manning.
2: And she asked me, she said, hey, would you like to sing with me later on? And I was like, yes. And I said, I would. I didn't know what the song was going to be. We ended up singing Hero. Now, I'm a kid. I'm such a fan of Mariah and Whitney and all these people. So I knew the whole song like the back of my hand. So I knew that I was going to be in entertainment, but I never knew that it was going to be to the dimension that we have achieved so far and are still growing.
0: So fast forward, take us through how you ended up on American Idol. Tell us about the audition. I want to know, because as a kid, I mean, I was obsessed with American Idol like everyone was. And I definitely wanted to audition like as a child. Like that was a dream of mine. So I want to know how you got there.
2: I did not audition until seven, uh, until two o'clock that afternoon, two or three o'clock. So imagine you're sitting there all day. Now, here's the thing. I am sitting there. My vocals are, at this point, I was sleeping on and off. So it's like, oh, God, you know, when you go to sleep, baby, your voice has to wake back up. Right, yeah. And then they come to your section and say, hey, come on down. So you're going through, you're walking through the line. I already knew that I was going to sing, I will survive. But what happens is, is during the American Idol auditions, they have everybody set up. So they got like cubicles and they have different producers and you just walk up. They put you in a line. So first you're all in this line and they'll put three or four of you and you walk up. They put you there, and it was my sister, somebody else, and then me. And we walked up, and they performed, and then afterwards, I came up, and I knew that I had to nail this. So, we go through this, and then they said me. That they wanted me to come back up and continue on. And they were like, that's your sister? And I was like, yes. And so they brought us. And so when you actually see the audition, you see my sister and I auditioning together. It never was planned that we were going to be this duo. Yeah, I wondered because that's kind of unique. Yeah. Right. We were raised together. We were the first duo, the first duo to be passed through on American Idol. We made history. We were the first duo that was passed through. But we ended up seeing the judges. We ended up seeing Simon, Paula, and Randy. And they loved me. They loved my voice. The song that I actually, the song that you guys saw was the song my sister and I sung together. But Devin, I actually did. I am such a fan of musicals. And I had, um, by this time, gotten into this musical called Hairspray. And Motormouth Maybell Queen Latifah, played the part. And she did this song called Big Blonde and Beautiful. And I was a little hefty at that time. So I did a song called Big Bald and Beautiful. I served those saints with gladness. I served them and they gave us tickets to Hollywood and the rest is history.
0: Jeffrey's time on the show was a blur, but he's grateful for the experience. He may not have gone all the way but his appearance definitely opened new doors for him.
2: After I left American Idol, Fox gave me a call, and they said that they wanted me to do entertainment. They wanted to interview us for the fact that we were going to be on American Idol. So we came in, and the viewers must have enjoyed. So they asked me, they said, hey, would you be interested in coming back and doing commentary about American Idol? I was waking up at four in the morning to get dressed, to drive, literally for about 45 minutes to an hour, to the studios to appear i was grateful for the opportunity
0: today jeffrey wears a lot of hats he's a radio show host a worship leader even an entrepreneur with his own restaurant chain jeffrey lampkin's country boy kitchen we went back and forth about sumter and what makes it such a special place
2: It's amazing how Sumter is so has expanded in so many different ways, and there's so many truly like great places that you've got to go. I think that Sumter has many great churches that you can actually go and just get a great word and great worship service. I am affiliated with Grace Cathedral. I'm a member of Grace Cathedral in Sumter. And so I definitely recommend people to go there. There There's so many other great churches that are there that are Alice Drive and Bethesda and Jehovah. We don't often talk about a spiritual side of a city. But there's one there that I think is absolutely wonderful.
0: What do you want visitors or your friends when they come to visit you in your restaurant? What do you want them to take away from their time in Sumter?
2: When you come to Sumter, I want you to understand the concept of Southern hospitality and family. That's so big for me. I just don't think that you're going to find it more rich and more authentic. We are family. I don't greet you as, hey, Devin. Hey, friend. I need you to understand that. I need you to understand that when you're walking, people are going to say hello to you. That's the beauty of Sumter. People are going to hold the door. They're not just going to let the door close. It's not this selfishness that sometimes you actually are beginning to see in the world where people are always thinking about themselves. But here in Sumter, there is a pride. And another thing that I'll say about Sumter that you're going to see is a pride for this great country that we live in. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. This country isn't perfect. However, you've got people striving to make the world a better place. And that's what it is here in Sumter.
0: Sumter is a place of growth and abundance. And that's not just as far as crops or the cypress trees along White's Mill. You can find that abundance within people, within families, communities, and their aspirations. One could see Nat and Jeffrey and think their stories aren't connected, But to me, their lives are evidence of a unique blend of tradition and tenacity that must thrive in the area. And for the people who call Sumter home, that's definitely something to be proud of. Well, that's it for this episode of the Palmetto Porch. Thank you to our guests, Nat Bradford and Jeffrey Lampkin. And thank you for joining us all season long. It's been such a great journey hearing the different stories and voices from these small town destinations. I hope you've been inspired to plan a trip and discover a new side of South Carolina. If you like what you heard, share it with a friend or leave a review on your platform of choice. It really helps us to get the word out. And to find out more about Sumter or any of the towns that we featured this season on our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. The Palmetto Porch is produced by Discover South Carolina in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team at Pod People, Ashton Carter, Michael Aquino, and Kim Wong.